Thanks so much for singing that song. It always touches my heart just to think about how much Jesus loves me. You know, we are responsible for the death of Christ, and we are the, uh, the, the thorn and the, uh, the, the nails in his hands, and uh, yet he loved us anyway. I just can't ever get over that song. Every time I hear it on the radio, it just touches my heart to remind me what a loving God that we have. And, and Amen? So praise the Lord. Well, if you have your Bible with you, open up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing chapter, chapter 14 of John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 4 through 6. And I've entitled this morning's message as, One Way to Heaven. One Way to Heaven. John chapter 14, verses 4 through 6. And so if you haven't been with us in a while, we've been going through John. We covered verses 1 through 3 last week. And here we are, verse 4. John writes this, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Dear God, we pray today as we come to this famous passage of the Bible, of this threefold claim of Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life, that you would help us to see this this verse and these verses that we'll look at in their context and that you would help us to see the love that you have for us, that you would send Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place so that we could have eternal life with you forever. And so I pray that today, God, you would open our hearts and you would open our minds to see the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning in a way that would cause us to want to just run to you and fall on our face before you and declare that you are our God and that we are a broken people in need of salvation through Christ and through Christ alone. And so speak to our hearts today through your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know, I don't know if you've been keeping up with it in the news or not as we've been kind of watching some of this year's Mount Everest climbers. Uh, the month of May has well been known to be the best month to get to the top of this mountain, and this has been one of the busiest years ever. Unfortunately, 11 people have died trying to accomplish this amazing feat. Mountaineers have suggested that difficult weather conditions, along with the lack of experience and the growing commercialization of expeditions, are all contributing to this danger. Mount Everest, as you know, is the highest mountain on the earth, reaching over 29,000 feet high. It is located in the Himalayas on the international border between Nepal and Tibet. The first recorded efforts to reach Everett's summit were made by British mountaineers in 1953. Since then, more than 4,000 people have reached the top as more climbers answer the call to make the trek to the top of the world's highest mountain. You will not be any closer to outer space anywhere else while still standing on Earth. Mount Everest is an extremely beautiful mountain, and mountaineers will do almost anything to experience the majesty and the beauty and the adventure of conquering the climb and standing on top of the world. These days, you need to hire a professional climbing company to safely get you to the summit. The average cost to climb the mountain, including your permit and your equipment and your guide, 
$60,000. Climbing Mount Everest begins by ascending to base camp, which in and of itself is a whopping height of 17,700 feet. That means just base camp at Mount Everest is 3,000 feet higher than the tallest mountain in America, Mount Whitney, which is 14,252 feet. Well, after arriving at base camp on Mount Everest, you have to climatize for three weeks to allow your lungs to get used to the thin air. During that span of time, you are doing climbs up and down the mountain to create more red blood cells to prepare for the summit push. When you finally decide it's time to go for the summit, you hike from base camp past camp one, which by this time you've done several times, all the way up to camp two. You are to remain at camp two for one day for rest and adaptation. On the next day, you climb to camp three. On the day after that, you climb up to camp four using oxygen tanks. You are now officially in the death zone. And the less time you spend there, the better. So on the evening on that day of 11 p.m., it's time to head out for the final stretch. A cold white moon rises from below, but you hardly glance at it or even the bright twinkle of the stars above. You kick your feet several times to beat the oncoming frostbite. The adrenaline keeps your body going. Finally, you notice a thin blue beam of light at the horizon, which is the glorious sunrise. As your heart keeps pounding in your chest, exhausted and elated, you victoriously reach the summit around mid-morning. Your time on the top of the tallest mountain in the world, 20 minutes. That's all you get before you have to begin your descent. But you did it. Congratulations, you are now an Everest summiteer. Well, when I initially chose to talk about climbing Mount Everest at the beginning of this particular sermon, I did so because I thought there was only one way to the top of the mountain. I was wrong. There are actually two ways to the top of Mount Everest. You could take the southern route starting from Nepal or the northern route starting in Tibet. And while there are two ways, apparently, to get to the top of Mount Everest, there is only one way to get to heaven. And this I can assure you. I am not wrong about this. There is only one path to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You cannot get to heaven any other way except through Jesus. If a climber will do almost anything to experience the majesty and the beauty and the thrill of summoning Mount Everest, then a pilgrim will certainly do whatever it takes to get to heaven. To get to heaven, you actually don't have to train. 
or hire a guide or pay 60,000 bucks. Heaven is a free offer to all who repent and believe. Heaven doesn't require any climbing gear or oxygen tanks. Heaven is not accessible for only the most fit climber. Heaven is a wonderful place for all who enter through Jesus. To get to heaven, you don't have to spend three weeks at base camp. You don't have to climatize, and you have more than 20 minutes to enjoy the view. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that there is only one way to heaven. And we will look at three headings this morning that you see there in your outline from John 14, 4 through 6, the kindness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, and the exclusivity of Jesus as we examine more closely the way to heaven. Our first heading, the kindness of Jesus from verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus, your first blank if you're taking notes, Jesus cares about his disciples. He cares about you and he cares about me. And at the end of chapter 13, the disciples must have been completely bewildered and demoralized. Jesus had just said that he was going away, that he would die, and that one of the 12 was a traitor, that Peter would deny him three times, and that Satan was at work against all of them, and that all the disciples would fall away. It is understandable that the disciples would have had troubled hearts. The cumulative weight of these revelations must have greatly depressed them. But Jesus says in those first three verses, do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus wants them to stop being stirred up with grief and agitation and instead to replace a troubled heart with a trusting heart. Jesus says to believe in God and to believe also in me. And the most caring thing that you could do for someone is to tell them about the love of Jesus. The most caring thing you could ever do for anybody would be to tell them the way to heaven. The most caring thing you could do for someone who is depressed or disappointed or troubled is to tell them there is a way out. Tell them that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the only one who can help you with your troubled heart. Not money, not wealth, not a new house, not a new car, not a new relationship, not a new baby, not a new look, not a new job not a new makeover, you need a new heart. And Jesus is the answer to that new heart. Jesus is the great physician of the soul. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is God in the flesh and he cares for you and he feels your pain and he knows your heartache. First Peter 5, 7 says to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Psalm 40, verse 17 says that God is my help and my deliverer. And so not only does Jesus care for his disciples, but Jesus also, your next blank, Jesus comforts his disciples. And how does Jesus comfort his disciples? Well, he tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. And last week, I told you that I don't believe that Jesus is referring to himself as being the heavenly decorator. And this is not HG, HGTV on steroids. Right? Rather, 
in the original language, it doesn't say he goes there to prepare a place for you. It says, I go and prepare a place for you. In other words, Jesus doesn't go to heaven to make preparations for you. He goes to the cross to prepare the way for you. D.A. Carson writes, quote, it is not that Jesus arrives at on the scene and then begins to prepare the place. Rather, in the context of John's theology, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus's disciples. The Father's house, mentioned in verse 2, is a reference to heaven, and Jesus will come again and take us there to himself, that where he is, we may be also. And just think about that for a moment. Jesus says, I will take you to myself. The best thing about being in heaven is about being with Jesus. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 does indeed give us a very ornate description of heaven. Those chapters talk about how heaven, my father's house, will be a holy city. It will be a new Jerusalem coming down. It will, be, it will have the glory of God and its radiance will be like a most rare jewel, like jasper and as clear as crystal. It will be a city of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city will be adorned with every kind of jewel, sapphires and emeralds and onyx, beryl and topaz. There will be gates of pearls. There will be a river of water, uh, the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Heaven will be the most beautiful place ever created. But you know what's more beautiful than heaven? The atonement of Jesus Christ. The love of God poured out for sinners on the cross for people like you and people like me. The place of heaven will indeed be beautiful, but it will never be as beautiful as the preparation for heaven accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross because of his love for you and for me. I mean, think about it. Is there really going to be anything more beautiful than the cross, than the love of God poured out for us? In fact, that's what we'll be doing when we get to heaven. We won't be singing about how beautiful the stones are or how beautiful the walls are or how gold the, the gold glitters. Right? And Revelation 5 says that there will be the worship of the living creatures and the elders and of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what's so beautiful about heaven. It's not necessarily the place where you hang out. It's not necessarily a mansion that you have in glory. It's being with Christ. It's being face to face with the Lamb of God. And yes, while heaven will be unbelievable, the best part will be being with Jesus and worship him, him day and night forever and ever. And this is the comfort that Jesus gives to us in verses one through three. And this is the comfort that he says that where I am, you may be also. I'm taking you to myself. Yes, heaven will be unbelievable, but Jesus also tells us 
that where he is is where you want to be. And then we read here in that context, verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus had greater faith than the disciples did because in verse 4, Jesus is telling them that they do know the way. He's like, hey, man, you guys know where I'm going. He has more faith than his disciples do in the fact that they do know the way. Now, one point of view here, as we look again at verse 5 here in a moment, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? But Jesus has already told him in verse 4, you do know the way. And so one point of view here is that the disciples didn't know as much as they should have. Another point of view is what we're seeing in verse 4 is that Jesus was actually encouraged by what they did know. The disciples did know far more than the great majority of the Jewish nation. They did receive truths and teachings in which the scribes and Pharisees entirely rejected. They knew and believed that their master was the promised Messiah, the son of the living God, and to know him was the first step toward heaven. Jesus is always so kind and reassuring this is Jesus saying, you do know the way. The way is through me. The way is through the cross. The way is through the resurrection. The way is following Jesus past the outer courts into the holy place and in, into the holy of holies. The way is the mercy seat of God where Jesus, our great high priest, has become our substitute. And according to Hebrews 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what we're seeing here in verse 4 again is Jesus is just showing reassurance and kindness to the disciples by telling them, by inserting faith in them, by approving of them, saying, hey, you guys do know the way. That's the kindness of Jesus. And we also see in this passage this morning, our second major heading, the patience of Jesus in verse five. Again, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so here we see where Jesus shows grace, your next blank, to doubters. Jesus shows grace to doubters. Now you probably have heard of Thomas as he has been nicknamed, what? Doubting Thomas. He earned that nickname because he was a disciple who doubted whether or not the disciples had really seen Jesus after the resurrection. And in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and to place my finger into the mark of the nails and to place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas has a problem. The problem is he's doubting the testimony to whether or not Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and whether or not Jesus has revealed himself to the other disciples. I mean, Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas was like, nah. No, nah, guys, I don't believe you. you know, a couple of years ago, we went to that Glory SCV concert over at COC to see the Newsboys. And after the concert, some of my kids actually got to meet the lead singer, Michael Tate. They were like blown away. It was like the end of the concert. We're walking back to our car. Here's Michael Tate, the lead singer of Newsboys. And, uh, and my kids get to meet him. 
and they talk to him, but I only had part of my kids there. So they talk to him, we take a few pictures, we get home, and of course, the group of kids who saw Michael Tate told the group of kids who didn't say, uh, see Michael Tate, guess who we saw? And they're like, who? And they're like, we saw Michael Tate. And the other kids are like, no, nah, man, you guys are kidding. You guys didn't see him. And then they pulled out the proof, all right? Here's the proof that we really did see him taking pictures, right, and showing him the pictures. And this is kind of what Thomas is going through. He's like, man, I don't believe you. Until I personally am able to place my finger in his scars, then I'm not going to believe that Jesus has truly been raised from the dead. And by the way, don't act so confident. We've all doubted before. You, you've doubted God's goodness in the midst of a trial. You've doubted God's word in the midst of an apparent contradiction. You've doubted God's wisdom in various principles that may even be in conflict with our culture. We have all had doubts. But I want us to see this morning is what is it that Jesus does with doubters? What does Jesus do with those who need to be reminded of God's love for them? What does Jesus do with the disciples who are having a hard time believing the truth? What well, we see in those next couple of verses of John 20, we looked at 24, 25, 26 and 27 says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How does Jesus treat doubters? Well, in this text, he treats them with incredible patience. I believe that Jesus showed up on this very night to show himself to Thomas. Jesus said, peace be with you. He wasn't angry. He wasn't irritated. He didn't yell at Thomas. He said, hey, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand in, in, in its place it in my side. Jesus was a living example of true grace. He showed grace to his enemies, he showed grace to the afflicted, and he showed grace to those who were doubting. But Jesus also directly commanded Thomas not to disbelieve, but to believe. I mean, notice he says to him there, he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. This wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't optional. This wasn't even a, whenever you're ready, Thomas. Have you ever realized that Jesus commands that we believe? Jesus shows grace to doubters, but he also commands that they believe. Are you doubting in God's goodness at all times? Just believe. Are you doubting God's wisdom in all situations? Just believe. Are you doubting God's love for you? Just believe. Are you doubting in your salvation? Turn from your sin, turn from your doubts, and trust in Jesus with all your heart. That's what Thomas did as we see how that text finishes in John 20, 28 through 29. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So when Thomas saw, he believed. He confessed Jesus as Lord over all. He, he embraced the deity of Christ. He submitted his life to Jesus. 
When he said, my Lord and my God, Thomas is saying, I see you, I believe in you, you're my master, I submit to you, you are everything. And may God grant us the same faith that he granted Thomas. Jesus may not give you the same privilege of putting your finger in his physical scars, but he will give you the same faith to believe. And blessed are you, he says, if you have not seen the actual body of the risen Christ and yet you believe. This, this is a gift of God. This is a gift of faith. This is a demonstration of God's love for you, that he would open your eyes and make you believe. Even if you've never seen in the flesh the risen Lord, you don't have to. You can take Thomas's witness and the account of the disciples and over 500 who saw the risen Lord. And you can see Christ through the scripture. And God can open your heart and he can open your mind this morning. And he says, you're blessed. If you believe in him, you are a blessed man and you are a blessed woman because he's given you the ability to believe. And so not only does Jesus show grace to doubters, but he also, your next blank says, Jesus gives hope to the discouraged. He gives hope to them. You may remember that earlier in the Gospel of John, we, we, we saw how word had been sent uh, to Jesus from Mary and Martha that their brother and Jesus' friend, Lazarus, was ill. And Jesus had recently left the area of Bethany and escaped across the Jordan River because the Jews had tried to arrest Jesus, but his time had not yet come. And when it becomes apparent that Jesus wants to go back to that same dangerous place of Bethany to help Lazarus and eventually raise him from the dead, the disciples said to him, do you remember what they said? They said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're gonna go there again? And then it was, lo and behold, Thomas, the doubting disciple, who also at times was discouraged, said in John eleven sixteen, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. So I'm adding an extra nickname to Thomas. He's the doubting disciple, and he's the discouraged disciple. And while it was true, and he can appreciate his courage, let us go with Jesus, it was almost like, I guess we'll go with him and we'll die with him. And the reason I'm saying there's discouragement because Thomas never gives any clue that he believes in a resurrection. He doesn't say, let's go die with him, and it's okay, guys, because Jesus will be raised from the dead. He's kind of insinuating, well, I guess this is the end. I mean, in one sense, Thomas is supportive of going back into this danger zone. But in another sense, all he said was that we may die with him. Thomas seems to think that this is the end. He's assuming that Jesus and all the disciples will be stoned to death in Bethany by Lazarus's tomb. But this is not the case. Jesus had already said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Thomas is missing the most important detail. Jesus is acknowledging that Lazarus has died, but Jesus is going to awaken him. And the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead is a precursor of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it is the resurrection that brings us life and peace and encouragement. And Jesus is constantly encouraging his disciples with this fact, this fact that he's going to die 
and this fact that he'll be raised from the dead. In fact, in John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 16.21 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day he would be raised. And Jesus taught us in John 10.18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down again, and I have authority to take it up again. And so here in our text for today, Thomas asks, how can we know the way? And Jesus graciously and patiently and kindly gives hope to this discouraged disciple. Are you discouraged today? Do you have questions today? I mean, I'm saying Jesus has already explained it. He's taught it. I'm going to die. I'll be raised. I'm going to die. I'll be raised. And Thomas is still having questions. And we may be the same. You may be here today, and instead of pointing at Thomas as a doubter and a discouraged disciple, you may say, you know what? That's me. I doubt all the time. And I can be discouraged all the time. And I still have questions about how does this work and how does that work and how can God be good? No question is off limits with God. No question is out of bounds. No question is inappropriate. Why? Because God has all the answers. His word is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. God is omniscient. God is able to answer your questions and to comfort your soul with his sufficient answer. And he answers us through his word. He answers us through the resurrection. And he answers us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Pain makes sense through Jesus. Heartache makes sense through Jesus. Suffering makes sense through Jesus. The problem of evil makes sense through Jesus. Our purpose on earth makes sense through Jesus. Death makes sense through Jesus. And how can you and I know the way in life? How can we know the way in marriage? How can you know the way in raising a godly family? How can you know the way in the midst of a difficult culture? How can you know the way to live in a way that would really count? Well, Jesus shows us the way, and he does so in verse 6. And so we've seen the kindness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, and now let's spend the rest of our time on the exclusivity of Jesus in verse 6. Again, he's been kind, he's been patient, he's reiterated, he's told the disciples they have more faith than they really know. He's answered their question before, but he'll answer it again. And in verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, before we look at this first blank, let me just remind you, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> let me just remind you that this is the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. So far, we have seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door. I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life. Here we have, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the six I am statement. And then the last, the seventh one, is I am the vine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just be reminded that each one of these I am statements points to the deity of Christ. Each one of these statements is Jesus saying, I am God in the flesh. Each one of these statements points to the fact that Jesus is infinite. 
that he is unchanging, that he is self-sufficient, that Jesus is all-powerful, and that he's all-knowing, and that he's omnibenevolent. Jesus is faithful, and he's good, and he's just, and he's holy, and he's glorious, and he reigns in majesty. When Jesus says, I am, we're to take notice of that. We're to understand that he's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for. He's everything that he's promised and so much more. He's more than amazing. He's more than marvelous. He's more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus is to me. Right? You remember that song, right? So in this incredible I am statement, that's what he's saying. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And so Jesus gives us three answers to Thomas's question, how can we know the way? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and all the, I am the life. And so let's take a closer look at each one of these three. The first one is, I am the way to heaven, and I want you to write down the word reconciliation. I am the way to heaven, <clears throat> and I think what's being magnified here <clears throat> is the idea of reconciliation. Now, this statement points to reconciliation, and to be reconciled is to be reunited. To be reconciled is to be brought back into relationship. To reconcile is to make peace between two opposing parties. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but mankind had been broken in its fellowship with God. In the person of Adam and Eve, they were in perfect fellowship with God. When sin entered the world, that perfect fellowship was broken. And the fall of man in Genesis 3 placed a chasm between a holy God and a sinful man. And the need that you and I have is to be reconciled. We need to be reconciled to God because we are sinners. And Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so in Adam, we realize that we all sinned. And in our pride, we are sometimes tempted to think that if I would have been there in the garden. You ever had that thought? You know, you kind of get that feeling of like, man, why did Adam take a bite of that apple? If I'd have been there, I'd have never done that. Well, if you haven't thought that, just ask your kids. They'll probably tell you, yeah, Dad, I would have done it. And the truth is, you know what? We all did it. We, we are all sinners by nature, and each one of us have fallen into sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. And Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. We were by children, uh, by nature, children of wrath. And the Bible says that we were enemies of God, that we were depraved, we were corrupted, we were defiled. And the chasm between a holy God and sinful man is so great that no one could cross it. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, said this, quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, are some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. Now, in that sermon, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. Edwards rightly diagnosed the sinner's position before a holy God. He's just trying to make us understand the chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We're not even close, not even for a moment. But in that same sermon, did you know Edwards also said this, quote, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open. And he stands at the door calling to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. So what Edwards is simply saying is like, hell is hot. There's a lot of fire. It's what we all deserve. But Jesus stands here to give mercy to any repentant sinner. And that's what Jesus is saying in essence in this passage before us today. Jesus is saying, I am the way. I am the way of reconciliation to God. Jesus alone has appeased the wrath of God by his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And because God is pleased with Christ's sacrifice, and if you are in Christ today, that means he's pleased with you. And if you are in Christ today, God, he loves you, and he's drawn you, and he's bringing you through this way, through Christ. There is no other entrance. There is no other path. There is no other gateway into heaven but through Jesus. Please note, here in John 14, 6, Jesus did not say, I am a way. Right? He said, I am the way. Acts 4, 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus does not merely show the way. He himself is the way. And it is true that he teaches the way, and he guides us in the way, and he is dedicated for us a new and living way, but it is all possible only because he himself is the way. You can't get there through religion. You can't get there through Buddha. You can't get there through Muhammad. You can't get there through the Pope. You can't get there through your intellect. You can't get there through the Big Bang. You can't get there through social justice. You can't get there by being a Republican or by being an American. And Lord knows you can't get there by being a Californian. <laughs> now listen to me. <clears throat> the world hates this message. And the world wants it to be about an all-inclusive message. The world hates the preaching of Jesus when he says, I am the way. And the world is annoyed by it. And the world wants anyone and everyone to go to heaven any way they want. And the world says that to tell someone there is only one way is restrictive. And the world says that to tell someone there's only one way is bigotry. And what the world calls hate speech, the Bible calls love. Because the Bible says it's through Christ. It's through Christ alone. And that is not a hateful speech. That is a loving speech of God offering an olive branch to humankind through his precious son, Jesus Christ saying that if you'll come through Christ, you can have everlasting life. And while the world sees this as some ancient view, the Bible sees it as an everlasting view. The world will persecute you 
for this view, while God will only save you if you see this view and believe this view and acknowledge this view that it's only through Christ and through him alone. Now, not only do we see in this verse that Jesus is the way to heaven, we also see him say, I am the truth from heaven. Your next blank there is illumination. I am the way to heaven, and then I am the truth from heaven. And I believe here what we're seeing is the idea of illumination. Jesus will take us to heaven and reconcile us to God. And Jesus is the truth from heaven to light the way. Jesus illuminates that path through the truth being revealed to us. The Bible calls this the doctrine of illumination. It is the turning on of the light in a spiritual sense. It's like you can't see it, and then you can see it because God has miraculously revealed his truth to you through his word. It's like something that you just can't see it, and then you see it. It's like working with your kids as they're working through fractions and math. That seems to be one of the most common things that maybe a kid will struggle to kind of get that grasp. I can't understand fractions, and what is a numerator, and what is a denominator, and how in the world do you find a common denominator? It'll drive you crazy as a parent trying to explain that to your kids until you pull out a dollar bill. You put it on the table and you pull out four quarters and you put it down the table. Now your kids know you mean business because you're pulling out cold, hard cash. (laughs) Then you start to explain to them this quarter doesn't equal a dollar, but four of them do. And somehow as you start to explain it with money, I don't know why money works, but it just does, all right? So if you're having trouble with fractions, go ahead. There's a math teacher right there. He's nodding his head. Do it. Do it. So then you can explain it. And then all of a sudden, you've been there as a parent, when all of a sudden your kid gets it and they see it and it's like the light comes on. They finally see it. And this is what's happening in this doctrine of divine illumination. You can't see it. Christ could be in front of you. Christ could preach the Sermon of the Mount to you. You could be in church every Sunday for your whole life, but you can't see it until God, the Holy Spirit, through his word, by his sovereign divine revelation, opens your heart and he opens your mind so that which you used to not be able to see, you can now see. This is what he means when he says, I am the truth. Jesus is that truth that is revealed from heaven to you. It's Ephesians 1:17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that to that which he has called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, the eyes of your heart have to be enlightened. And so the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus that our hearts might be enlightened to the truth of the gospel and see the wisdom of following Jesus Christ. And in the same manner that Jesus wasn't just showing us the way, that he was the way, he's not just showing us the truth, he is the truth. Jesus is the way to God because he alone is the truth from God. It's John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. It's John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's that conversation that Jesus had with Pilate when Pilate was asking him if he was a king, and Jesus said that he would bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate said to him, what is? is truth. And this is the same question that our world is asking today. Our world does not believe in one particular singular 
truth of Jesus. They believe in what they like to call some type of, of rational, um, some type of, uh, of a universal truth where they might say something like, what is true for you is true for you, but what is true for me is true for me. And that's just ridiculous. Right? I mean, how can you say what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me? Uh, you don't treat gravity like that. You know, you might say to someone, well, gravity may be true for you, but it's not true for me, right? But if you jump off a building and fall to the ground and you splatter on the ground, then, then you could see that the law of gravity doesn't care what you think, right? I mean, you don't treat your electric bill like that. If you don't pay your bill, they will cut off your electricity. Welcome to the real world. It doesn't matter if you think that's true or not. Just experience, you experience that because it's true. I mean, you can't treat your boss like that, right? If you, if, you, if you don't think it's true that you have to show up to work on time, then try showing up whenever you want and see how long it takes you to get fired. I mean, you can't just sit around and say, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. No, at some point, you have to be reasonable. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the truth. And if you don't come through him, then you don't get to heaven. And only Jesus can open up the way. And we see Jesus again described as being the truth in Revelation 19.11. When, when heaven is open and behold, he comes out on a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Now, you want to know what the truth is? Jesus is true. Everything he said was true. Everything he did was to point us to the truth. Don't look to the world. Don't look to philosophy. Don't look to psychiatry. Don't believe a lie. Believe in Jesus who is the truth. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And thirdly and finally, he says, I am the life of heaven. This points us to regeneration. I am the life of heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says here that he is the life. Again, he doesn't just give life. He is the life. This is not spontaneous regeneration, life arising from non-living matter. No, this is the living Son of God who is immortal, who gives life because he is life. It's John 1, 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so is he granted to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this word life that Jesus is using is not the word bios, which refers to physical life, as in biology. It is not the word suke, which refers to liveliness of a person's persona or demeanor. No, this is the word zoe, which is the abundant life. This is the eternal life of God. And this is what God gives only through Christ. And I believe all three of these, the way of reconciliation, the truth of illumination, and the life of regeneration, we can all see in 1 John 5.20. 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and this and his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So I'm saying that there's a paraphrase of John 14, 6 in 1 John 5, 20, because when he gives us understanding, that's showing us the way. And that when we are in him who is true, then we finally saw the truth of heaven. And that when we have understanding, that's seeing the way, 
and we have the truth, that's Jesus Christ, then it leads to eternal life. I believe that John 14, 6, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, is a microcosm of the whole Bible. Jesus is the solution for our sin, and he is the redemptive thread that runs throughout the Bible. The theme of redemption finds its beginning and its end in this threefold description of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to how A.W. Pink, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, so aptly describes this. He says this, Before sin entered the world, Adam enjoyed a threefold privilege in relation to God. He was in communion with his maker. He knew him and possessed spiritual, he knew him, that's truth, and he possessed spiritual life. But when he disobeyed and fell, this threefold relationship was severed. He became alienated from God as hiding, the hiding of himself is painfully demonstrated, having believed the devil's lie, he was no longer capable of perceiving the truth as the making of the fig leaf aprons clearly evidenced. And he no longer had spiritual life for God's threat in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, was strictly enforced. In the same awful condition has each one of Adam's descendants entered this world, for that which was born of flesh is flesh, a fallen parent can beget not but a fallen child. Every sinner, therefore, has a threefold need. Reconciliation, illumination, and regeneration. This threefold need is perfectly met by the Savior, for he is the way to the Father, he is the truth incarnate, and he is the life to all who believe in him. Well, where are you today on this path of life? Is the path that you are traveling on leading to heaven? Wouldn't it be a shame if those climbers trying to summit Mount Everest, who had spent all that money and gone through all that training, and after putting their lives at risk, wouldn't it be awful if they reached the end of that trail only to find that it did not lead them to the top? Wouldn't it be all in vain, all that effort, and it didn't lead to the top? Well, my friends, the way to the top is through Jesus. You can't take any trail. You can't go any way. You'll never get there. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. There are no apologies, and there are no exceptions. There is only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. Come to him this day. And he'll put you in a place way better than Mount Everest. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to see Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And we're praying that this morning that you would open our eyes and that you would open our hearts and that you would allow us to see the beauty of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ in a way that would never repel us or cause us to want to reject the beauty of Christ, but rather we would come in single file line before the judge of the universe and only by his blood that has been applied to our account through the love gift of Jesus Christ from the Father who died in the place of each and every repentant sinner that we could be spared from the wrath of God, that we could enter into the holy of holies, that we could have communion with you forever. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Help us to be more encouraged. Help us to be more confident. Help us to be more grateful. Help us to be more unapologetic for this incredible statement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would proclaim it boldly and that you would move through your word to draw many to yourself. Lord, we don't want to beat around the bush as our Lord Jesus Christ was so clear. I pray that we would be just as clear in our evangelism and in our effort to tell a lost and dying world about the beauty of the kindness and the patience of Jesus and the exclusivity of there being only one way to heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.